everybody. Welcome to Dwarf Fortress Talk. This is Rainseeker, and I'm joined here by Captain Tastic, my other host. Howdy. And we have here, as always, our illustrious leader, Tartan Adams. Hey. <laughs> hey. And uh, this week we have a special guest. Um, he's, uh, I, I'm fortunate to be able to talk to two of my favorite indie game developers, um, it is Brian Bucklew, uh, founder and creator, or co-founder, I guess, of, of uh, Caves of Quad. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, Summer we, chat. We are so excited to uh, finally connect with you and, and do this talk. Um, we're going to be um, having some fun talking and comparing the two games, and uh, <laughs> it should be interesting. It's a showdown. <laughs> oh wow! I concede. I don't know. What I... <laughs> I, I, I was going to gonna... <laughs> no, concede. I mean, you got you got writing. <laughs> All right, end of the podcast. <laughs> and that concludes <laughs> another Dwarf Fortress talk. <laughs> Thanks for coming, guys. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was talking earlier about you guys. You guys have those colorful adjectives in front of the items, and we just can't compete with that. <laughs> yeah, we got that. We've, we've got like a whole new shader system too. Where we've got text shaders, where we 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 name the 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 various like rainbow outcomes or whatever, so nobody has to hand code them anymore. That's that's some new technology we added recently. Have you wow. seen the new entrails sprites? Not it's new. Oh, <laughs> the entrails sprites for the Steam version. <laughs> That's right. We've 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 upped our game in the guts category. They look oh, like that's a... amazing. I can't believe we don't have entrail sprites. That's <laughs> the worst. We had like... some cool bone bone sprites, but no like viscera. I mean, well, to be to be completely frank, uh, we don't have uh, you know a, uh, pools of asphalt in our game here. Uh, maybe we need that, Tarn. These asphalt pools. Well... I, w- I was more intrigued by Brain Brian when I was reading the recent Liquid Editions. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, was, cut. that was Jason's brilliant edition. That's like <laughs> you think about you think about like the heads in Futurama or whatever, right? Like they're they're not <laughs> probably sitting there in Sprite. So what is it that they're sitting in? And Brain Brian was a good one, right? Very... Does that does that also also come in like bubbling pools in the in the fungal area? Oh yeah, you can find all the liquids <laughs> throughout the game. And brain brain is pretty rare because it's pretty powerful. You get you get powered up when you drink brain brine, as you can expect. <laughs> like if you have like Walt Disney's head like marinating in brain brine, you have to assume that that's like an extremely powerful concoction, right? I mean, so if you're gonna make you like that, really smart. It's like a tincture of Disney, right? That's right. Boom. That's right. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I just drew a mouse. <laughs> Does it also come alive? Are there are there like conditions for it to come alive in those oozes? Like yeah, any, any oozes liquid, and so yeah, forth. Any liquid can be absorbed by the by the oozes in or and they they. So every time we add new liquid, we have to like figure out what the physical embodiment of that liquid would be when it becomes an ooze, and so it gives the gives them a brainy. Bring you can, you, can, can, you ch- can you chat with them then and, 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 and become friends? I don't I don't know if you you, you could like <laughs> dominate their mind and wander around in their body, but I don't know if you can like befriend them. Diplomacy by other means. Yeah. <laughs> well there, there's surprisingly a lot of diplomacy in your game. I mean I, I uh the other day I had a start where I um 
started with a baboon omelet or something like that, so the baboons wouldn't attack me. Baboon omelet. I don't know if you. Well, it's it's it's. Uh, I know that's not what you said, but if you think like egg laying baboons, <laughs> you have a baboon omelet. Delicious, <laughs> absolutely delicious. Yeah, it's it's something that like we we when we when we started making caves of cud, we were like three years old or whatever. You know, it was like fifteen or twenty years ago, and so we're just sort of cargo culting the pieces of games we liked, and of course, like the only verb that exists in ro- most roguelikes is attack it right or quaff right, right? like you can, you can attack it or drink it and that's pretty much it <laughs> and so you know caves of cud sort of came from from that that basis and later we were like well there's a lot of other interesting things you could do in this simulative world we've made like talk and so we've tried to sort of up the importance of some of those verbs like diplomacy where you have the water ritual you have sure. sort of fat alignment and stuff and you know, We'd even like to do like a sort of tourist mode where we downplay the combat even more and you would be neutral to neutral to all the factions to a lot of people who don't really want to ha- like have as much combat as the game want- tends to once you have, but want to explore some of the other aspects of the game, allow them to do that. So we'll probably, we'll, we'll probably do that before 1.0. Um, oh, that's fun. Yeah, it's something we want to do for a while. Well, that's cool. It's like a much different from the NetHack tourist yeah, no, but not 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 that curious <laughs> one. More like a lazy mode. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me while I queue. <laughs> were the Assassin's Creed games the first ones that did that, or there must have been something else that had kind of like discovery mode or whatever? I don't know. Assassin's Creed feels like it's the only one that really pops to mind. I'm sure there were others, right? Like you go back and like, oh yeah, 1973 or whatever they've been doing. Yeah, I know they always. Yeah, the people people always find stuff, but really, no, it, it it seems like a new thing to me. Yeah, I I really like the tourist mode in Assassin's Creed because it's so like they're it's so cool to see you know Ptolemaic Egypt rendered at AAA budgets and being able to disengage with the combat system and just sort of run around was was pretty awesome. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, especially the amount of like the you know, full-time historians and things they'll have working on those projects and then rendering everything. It's yeah, it is kind of a waste to to just have to go in and murder another guard or whatever. Uh, although I did that plenty. Oh um, sure. I mean, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not getting down on running around and murdering half of Ptolemaic Something I enjoy doing, but you know, after that, it's nice to cool down by just sort of wandering around <laughs> and enjoying the other aspects of the world that they built. Because I mean, they really do a good job, right? Like they they had a linguist design the language, and they did a good job, you know, rendering the way the pyramids looked and talking about the differences between you know the old historical gods and the newer historical gods. And it, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty fun little, little rendering of the world to just walk around and be immersed in without worrying if like an assassin is about to come bursting out of the weeds and, and take you down. Yeah. I mean, it's almost as much work as you guys put into Tomb of the Eaters. Pretty much. Oh boy. That's, that's like, we were like, yeah, sure. We could normal scope creep, right? <laughs> like just the average scope creep, and take three months to do a single budget, <laughs> or we could super scope creep and have it take eleven months to do a single budget, <laughs> and have it be two hundred maps or whatever. I mean, it just yeah. it just, fits right in with uh, you know what what Tarn does here. 
Oh yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, but it's, it's lovingly crafted, uh, and then merged with, with the, the procedural content rather than just, you know, splorted. That's dwarf, dwarf stuff is mostly splorted. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. We, we, we started thinking about it and it's like the axial dungeon in a lot of ways. We decided in the early versions of the game, there were, there was the tomb of the eaters and then there was the spindle. And, you know, Jason sort of worked the story until he came out and said, you know, it sort of makes sense for these places to be merged, right? The spindles sort of, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil too much, but the spindles a little bit of an object of veneration and we can wrap this dungeon around the spindle. So we merge these two locations. So already the scope's blowing up because now it's two locations instead of one location. And then you're like, well... It's a representation of the whole history of Cud, so we need a different Z-level for each era. <laughs> and each of the Z-levels needs to have, you know, like, not only the nine screens, but also the spindle in there and probably an outer casing to make it feel big. And, like, pretty soon you're, you know, we were just at, like, hundreds of zones we had to make for this for this dumb thing. And, you know, we, we had... We left a lot of good ideas on the side. Like, we were we were thinking maybe we would do, like, an animatronic museum of each sultan's history and that ended up being cut so we could have been, it could have gone even worse but uh, you know, as it is i think we we got it done within a, a year and that's a small victory so how yeah, did you, no, that's, that's excellent i'm so sorry how did you develop the, your history uh of the world i mean i know it's kind of a an outline of a history but how did you decide to do that boy so we, we, when we were teenagers, would play a lot of Game World and other role-playing games. And we really liked Game World, especially sort of the procedural character creation. But mm-hmm. weren't super enamored with the world-building that it did. And a bunch of other design decisions, right? Thought, you know, the sort of like goofy... The goofy world of Game World is neat, but isn't really our thing, right? We like a like sort of different kind of goofiness, I guess. Um, and so we also like sort of deep history and physics and stuff like Conan or whatever. And so in the early two thousands, before we started CUD, we were playing with a, a tabletop RPG world and a little web game. You know, this was like, I guess blaze balls, build bringing web games back. But back in the day, you know, you'd have like whatever drug wars or whatever, all those web games you would log in and play turns. And we were, you you got to give a shout out to your team here. (laughs) Drug wars. (laughs) Oh no. Unlimited. How can you not not be an unlimited tacos fan? That's, that's I mean, half, half my feet is Hades tigers, of course, because they're all classicists and stuff. Those are fair weather fans just because they're, they're hot right now. I'm sticking with the millennials. Millennials, <laughs> and there's there's a fourth team. Who's who didn't announce their team? Oh, oh I didn't. I didn't announce my. I mean, I didn't even announce my team because I don't have one. You don't have. I haven't a team actually. Haven't, I haven't actually been following this except as like a secondhand um, sort of oh, fascinating object through it's through hard. Twitter. You have to pick a team. This is like <laughs> this is like Roko's Basilisk. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I have to be with the garages if they're local, right? But I'm not sure right. things are local when you have like vortices and time loops. Yeah, well, the unlocking and... tacos is, is is tacos across all dimensions, so they're not all <laughs> directly localized. 
Yeah, hopefully. hopefully well, I guess I won't, I won't make you commit to a team here, but I think you should seriously consider it and <laughs> put it in your profile. I think <laughs> I think it's required. What we're talking about? We're talking about the history of CUD. Yeah, so we made this. We made this world. We made this world that was cool. We liked it, right? It's got certain settings, properties. It's got you know, however many millennia in the future. You know, things that have gotten fucked up in certain political and and uh, geophysical ways. And the set. It was set in this world where you had a bunch of freeholds, and this is where the name of the company came from. The company comes after this world, right? Where you've got a bunch of city-states sort of in a Gilgamesh-like era where you don't really have huge polities. You instead have these individual city-states that have certain characteristics. And at the same time, I, I was building a roguelike based on, you know, my interest in just roguelike engines since I was a teenager. And I was on, like, my 50th roguelike engine. Each of them has <laughs> had been just, just awful so far, <laughs> right? Um, and not, not really worked when you tried to really push it. And so by like my 50th attempt, this engine was working pretty good. Um, I've done some talks on it. Um, it was working for various technical reasons pretty well. And at some point we said, wow, it would be pretty cool to play a game like Rifts or Game World or Metamorphosis Alpha in a roguelike. All these roguelikes that we're playing are fantasy. There's no like, there's like Alpha Man. Um, right, right. There yeah, were a guess, couple. Uh, Gear, Gearhead, maybe something like that. I don't think Gearhead was around yet. Gearhead, Gearhead came out around the same time we did. I think um, early two right. thousands. It, it certainly wasn't like super developed. Um, but yeah, maybe Gearhead Alpha Man was an early one, and not too many other sci fi roguelikes, right? Um, and so we said, well, let's. What if we tried to do that? Let's take some of the pieces we like from some of these games, and what is the setting going to be like? Well, eventually we realized, well, what if we pull a corner out of this freehold setting that's a little more amenable to sort of wacky rifts, game world-like mutation? We're going to pull this corner of CUD, which was in the setting that we'd been working on for like a decade, maybe less time, but many years, um, and said, let's set it there. And so we inherited a bunch of world building we'd been doing for this web game and this, this tabletop RPG, and... Um, we we used that history that we've been developing for those other things and pulled out this little corner and embedded that corner in this world. And it gives it a really nice feel because you've got all of the lore of CUD, some of which is procedurally generated, sort of embedded in this bigger world design that isn't actually referenced all that much. We reference it tangentially in the histories, but it gives it you know a really nice depth of feeling to have this whole sort of external legendarium obliquely referenced a bunch um, and not really engage with the game in the same way that you read like Lord of the Rings and it's got sort of this external legendarium that's referenced, that's coherent, but isn't really the story you're reading, you know? And I think it, it, attentive readers pick up on that texture and it feels really nice, whether or not they know exactly why it feels really nice or not. Um, and that's, that's the short history of the history of cut, I'd say. Yeah, that's awesome. Snap Jaws versus Kobolds. Go. <laughs> so, I've always been a Knoll fan in Dungeons Dun- Dun- <laughs> Dragons, right? Knolls are awesome. They're like much more interesting than kobolds, 
right? Not that I don't love kobolds, but I think everybody loves kobolds, right? And I feel like there's less people that really love gnolls. I think gnolls mm-hmm. are an underrated race. I think hyenas are hilarious, right? They, <laughs> they look funny. They act funny. They can't really decide if they're menacing or goofy, right? Like, they're a weird liminal race. And so when I was when I was very first starting this, without Jason's input at all, I was like, oh, I'm going to put some gnolls in here. And... <laughs> That's what that's that that was the origin of the Snapjaw. It was my love of gnolls and needing a level one race to put in version one Red Rock just so I can beat on things. Well, I, I must say I do love uh, discovering a uh, legendary knoll and uh, you know Snapjaw and and making him my buddy. Yeah, it's, it's really fun. Gnolls are great. Does Dwarf Fortress have gnolls? Oh no, it has. Well, it has hyena people. <laughs> like we're, we're, we're just yeah we have to we have to gloss things in the least interesting way possible I see, so yeah. uh, we don't want to you don't want to have wizards suing you, you lion people <laughs> right yeah, you do have yeah. People. oh yeah yeah they don't have anything interesting about them i mean we didn't we didn't get into the uh i mean yeah no you know hyenas are fascinating um yes yeah i mean the more you read about them the less pg it gets of course so we can't talk about the most fascinating things <laughs> oh, about yeah. hyenas That's but true. the uh but the, uh, I mean, I recommend people go look it up as long as you're 18. Uh, just go go check out Hyenas. And um, it's hyena super interesting. So super do you, interesting. If you have Hyena people or Lion people, do they, do they inherit any traits of the of the sort of base genotype? Well, I mean, what did we really have for traits to begin with? I, I guess is the... <laughs> it's like, what is the difference between a cow and a lion in Dwarf Fortress um, is is a kind of a, a tragic um, study because uh, they, they they don't have sort of... Purport- we, didn't, we didn't go in and do proportional body part sizes and bite strengths and things. So the, the difference is that a cow is not apt to attack you, but if it did, you don't want to be bitten by it because it's a large creature. Um, and, so, and so they, <laughs> so a lion is just a mean cow. It is a mean, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a big Sounds mean like cow. A... It's got a mane probably correctly and so forth, uh, when it should, but, but the, um, so, so the people, the animal people uses a kind of, um, uh, lurpy type thing, not quite a lerp, but basically, um, gravitates them toward human size, but not all the way. So lion people are much bigger than, than like, um, golden lion tamarind people um or other little little monkey people and little squirrel type peoples and chipmunk people and and that kind of thing uh they're sort of a minimum size so they they kind of get up to to kobold size um and then there's also i don't know that there's a maximum size because people for instance have fun playing elephant person adventurers because they're just so much larger than every other thing that they can it's kind of like starting on easy mode in a way um but 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 really no it's 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 uh it's really disappointing really in the end when we had the animal sponsorship drive we said hey here's new 200 near near new animals um and we wanted to add effects for them and of course the bee because our, our fans are very practical. So everyone voted for the bee. <laughs> yeah. And and then we had to spend a month adding honey and splitting hives and collecting wild colonies and right. all that stuff, right? But but then and then of course capybaras did pretty well. And that's when we added the sound system. So there's like alert noises and things like that. But then we just kind of petered out because there was other things to do. And so 
a lot of the animals just aren't distinguished. I mean, it's just a study in disappointment as we move from disappointment <laughs> to disappointment. I really like the idea that, that, like, in the Dwarf Fortress ontology, there's no difference between a lion and uh, an aggressive cow that's wearing a mane, though. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, to the... be fair, they have claws, right? They have different weapons. Uh, okay, well, yeah, maybe, maybe, well, well, the cow probably has horns, though, right, or yep. something? or some, yep. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's maybe worse than a lion if angered. Hooves yeah. are the maces to the tiger's swords. <laughs> yeah, we really, yeah. Well, we do our best. You can melt them. <laughs> you can, you can, you can a lion, too, I think. Yeah. I bet that would be upsetting, <laughs> an upsetting thing to try to do, though. Now, that doesn't seem like a great <laughs> idea. Yeah, milking the lion, milking the giant lion. We have giant versions, of course, of everything. Can you, can you get, like, a historiography where someone's milked an animal and that becomes a uh, like a sort of titular appendage because I could see like you know Hoseus <laughs> lion milker that that guy is scary right yeah <laughs> no we, we 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 so want to get into the new names right and this is something that 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 also is is kind of a I feel that 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 Cud has a has a has an advantage. Um, advantage cud on uh, on naming right mm-hmm. you guys have names that have different structures they can refer to things and and so forth where, where we've been stuck for um how many years has it been 18 years we've been stuck on like uh, noun verber type names right uh just like first name last name which is made up of two compounds and then uh the optional adjective optional hyphen word noun of noun right um it's just Famous the way our phrases are stored murdered <laughs> yes boat murdered <laughs> <laughs> and it's 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 it was just for ease ease of not coming up with grammars and also because we were sort of fascinated with linguistics we're like we'll do a good job later um, yeah it's it's quite hard i mean we we have we have jason and one of our sort of additional contract developers who spend a lot of time on the naming grammars and the way they composite and it's a it's a it's a huge amount of work, right? Like each of those grammars is sort of an independent thing you need to build, and then you need to make sure that they all composite together when you get qualifiers from a couple of them. And they do they do a huge amount of work building building those grammars and doing the composite. Yeah, we always, we always have bugs every week on on <laughs> some compositing corner case. Yeah, I know we've only only just gotten started on that trying to to come up with sort of a, a universal grammar. It's like, I, I mean, I don't remember where people are at in linguistics. People are like, oh, there's probably not a universal gl- grammar for human languages or whatever, but it's like, we could have one. That makes right, life yeah. easier. <laughs> and then, um, then we could translate and stuff, translate between the names and, and so forth. But we're like, what, 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 how should we actually store this? If we want to think about, um, uh, translations into, into various grammars and so forth. And we, we only have a very simple, kind of layout now as sort of like movie scenes or whatever. Like what, what do you visualize? What are all the aspects of it? And of course the language can just drop a lot of the detail um, of the movie scene. Like if you don't care who's standing on the left or who's standing on the right, but that ends up being like a, 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 a like a, a what, what are they called? Uh, eames, various morphemes, eames and things that you tack, tack on things. Like if that, if that's really important to the speaker, then they, they, they can put that kind of detail in or whatever. Um, but we only did it for prophecies about the destruction of cities uh, <laughs> as, a, as a thing for, for people to scream. We actually kind of snuck in our initial linguistics test on, on prophets screaming uh, things. But um, 
Oh, It'll be a long time before we get that into naming, uh, naming, uh, and so forth. Yeah, just another project. Brian, I hear that uh, you're revamping the mutations. We are revamping the mutations after after two of the eaters. We were tired and we wanted to do something fun, and so we picked something off the backlog that we thought would be fun and everyone would enjoy, um, which yeah. was redoing the mutation balance. And so there's sort of a very long-running imbalance between espers and chimeras, right? Like the linear warriors and, and quadratic wizards thing. But also sort of all the physical mutations had, had these fairly intense defects or drawbacks, not defects. Like they would take slots up in ways that mental mutations didn't. And so there was, uh, another, sure. there was just sort of like this big difference. There was not real parity between the two. And so this mutation passes mostly really improving physical mutations and, and slightly decreasing the power of some of the mental mutations in some cases, just trying to become more interesting to play like teleportation, for instance, um, was just a perfect teleport at a certain range. And now it has sort of an AOE. And so there's a little more choiciness about how you play teleportation and most yeah. of the physical mutations are losing their slot use. Some of them aren't right. Like Carapia still takes your body. Um, Horn still takes your heads, but some things like claws and stingers are either getting their own parts like stingers where they, you grow a tail and it's got a stinger on it <laughs> rather than taking up your back um, or wings, which still exists in your back slot, but it's sort of a default equipment that can be, you can put a robe on o- over that if you want. Um, sure. So, so improving the physical mutations quite a bit. Are you considering adding any additional? Yeah. I mean, obviously there's, a thousand mutations you can think of. Um, I think I think what we're going to do is probably do some thematic DLC after 1.0. So maybe a, maybe a DLC about a robot uprising or playable plants or, you know, oh, yes, like cucumber espers. Plant. Yeah, yeah. Um, and package some thematic mutations into each one of those um, is, is probably is probably the tack we're going to go. So we've been sort of queuing up the mutations for parcelment into thematic DLC packs, just so, you know, we can, we can earn the money to pay everybody who's working on them. Yeah, um, totally. I think, you know, I think people would be happy to pay a few bucks for some story content and new mutations and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's excellent. <laughs> Don't touch light manipulation. <laughs> we actually, we actually are very, light manipulation is is like our axial mutation. It's like a very bread and butter three point mutation, and we we basically literally said we're not going to touch light mutation because we think it's a very good bread and butter level of power that everybody likes. I think I mentioned it to you on Twitter several years ago that it's my favorite ability in almost any video game because it's you know you shoot laser beams, yawn, whatever. But also, it's an ambient light that tells you how much charge you have on your laser beams. Yeah, it's just the... It's so perfect. Form and function. A, uh, very adorable. Beautiful. A very yeah. adorable, <laughs> agree, like mix of, mix of form and function. But I was playing the game and uh, last night and, and today, and and I, was re- I remembered something about the game that I'd forgotten, and that is it, it scares me when we <laughs> level up. That sound... <laughs> Yeah, is startling. I I keep thinking I'm dead when it happens. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, the the sound production needs a little bit of work. You you also notice a few issues like it'll allow it'll allow you to play one sound like a combat hit like twenty times on top of one another in in a combat and just be super loud if there's a lot of combat <laughs> going on. And so there's just a bit of engineering that needs to happen to normalize those volumes. It is a very dramatic noise. I love it. <laughs> Get your blood going. So, um, once we're done with uh, mutations, uh, what are you looking forward to doing? What am I looking? I'm looking forward to shipping the game. It's been a while. Mm. I, think it'll, I, I think it'll be fun to ship. But between now and then, we've got two major pieces of quests, or like two major quests to do. Sort of the penultimate quest leading up to to the to the final in uh, end of the game quest, and then we've got a whole new UI to do, which I know. You all are in the middle of doing too. So we can share yeah. some pain there, right? Like you've got, yeah. to, you've got to design a whole new UI and build it. And UI work is just the worst. It's terrible. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't, I haven't, I haven't found myself enjoying it. I didn't think I would. And then I didn't. Yeah. So what, what... <laughs> That's a real, so how, a real story is... right there. Had me at the end. <laughs> yeah. How, how are we, how, how is that going? Can we talk about it? I'm oh, sure. Yeah, 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 sure. I mean, it, going. yeah, no, it's, 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 it's going. I mean, originally we started with the part that's actually fun, which is artists draw things. You put them in the game, they're in the game and now you've got new stuff. And that still happens. Like we just got a Swaro picture and now we've got Swaros with arms that grow out. Their little procedural arms are all visibly visible on the screen. And yeah, cool. that's excellent. And then it comes down to like, well, you know, you're in the embark menu and you've got the items that you're picking and someone might resize their window and what order do the elements <laughs> shrink? And what happens when when a yeah. when a text string gets to a certain size? And what if it's shrunk vertically? Like when do we collapse the boundary out to make it kind of sh- as shrinkable as possible? We're not quite going for the phone or anything, but um, we're getting there. Um, and it's it's just um, just math, and which is not I mean it's not a big problem for me. I mean fortunately I can do math, uh, but uh, it's just it's just just not. <laughs> I mean, the creative part of it is not the part where I'm involved, I think, because there's there's a lot of laying things out and stuff that 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 is interesting um, and and thinking about what the human is doing and making the human happy, um, which is I'm just not at a at an expertise level to have thoughts along those lines very often. <laughs> so yeah, I so like- I'm, I'm mostly just following like people's people's advice. I mean, fortunately, one of the artists, uh, Mike, um, is a is a kind of a UX person in their day life, uh, and they have a lot of um, insight into into this that we've been kind of following uh, their lead a lot uh, in ter- in terms of like that stuff. I was just talking about the collapsing and so forth. They had some strong opinions about what should go first, and uh, just kind of went with that. Um, but yeah, so, lots of stuff. So let me ask, is this is this all just like a custom C UI engine, or are you using something else? No, I'm just doing C. I mean, the the, the thing is, I'm I'm, I'm the, the kind of the core uh, determining critter here in terms of how things go is that we have um, sort of the the promise that allowed us to even embark on this in the first place and somehow keep a roof over our over our head is that uh, Dwarf Fortress Classic. Uh, is going to be released alongside the Steam one, and that is the ASCII game, right? 
Right. It's still there. And so in order to keep my um, ability to work on the game at all, I need those two interfaces to play very nice with each other. And so the new one has all the little borders and buttons and scroll bars and sliders, but they live partially within an ASCII grid. So it's still, oh. it still lives there. The borders, like all the pictures, it's like those old, you know, old um, uh, games, like an old Nintendo game or something where um, you'd have, these are eight by eight pictures and we're going to build everything with them, whether it's a mushroom or a cloud or a bush or whatever, right? You use the same, the same little glyphs and our, yeah. our interface feels like that. And, and, but you can't tell if you're not doing like, you know, dividing it and looking at a screenshot or something. Uh, and, and we have cheating is allowed too. you're allowed to slide things a few pixels off grid if you need to, or put bigger images in, uh, to the grid and so forth, but everything still basically interacts on the grid. So I can switch over to ASCII. It's not quite as, as, as badass as like Jupiter hell or something where there's like, you know, here's this 3d, um, thing with these sort of interpolated animations and it runs like real time. If you're clicking the keys fast enough and then pop, we're over in ASCII mode. Right. Um, but it, it's in a sense like that. Uh, where where it lives there, but it is just it's just C. I mean, I'm not. I'm SDL is, uh, is the fanciest thing I'm using. Yeah, uh, basically just handles input output. I'm still handling the locations of everything. Here's the left border. Here's the right border. Here's where this list begins. Here's how a scroll bar works. Here's the milliseconds that this thing needs to wait before hover pops up. And I mean, like like uh, what are those called? What are those instructions that pop up when you hover on something? Uh, tooltips. Uh, tooltips. Yes. Tool so yeah, timing on tooltips, all that kind of stuff. It's all just custom crap. Yeah, that's a lot to build. Yeah. UI UI systems are are a real bear. Yeah. No, um, a, yeah, yeah. Cave, Cave, Caves of Cud. Caves of Cud still thinks it's a it's an ASCII console game. <laughs> it runs. I've got this game that I wrote in C sharp. This engine that was talking to C sharp. You know, just the Windows console and keyboard API. Yeah. And when we went to Steam, we were like, well, we probably also want to support OSX and Linux. And we had had a good experience with Unity from Sproggy Wood, shipping it across a bunch of platforms, including mobile. I said, well, well what if we could get Caves of Code, which is C-sharp, to run inside of Unity, which is a C-sharp engine? And we eventually succeeded. Um, the way it works is that the game runs entirely on a second thread. And it communicates through a facade that's still basically the console and keyboard input facade, like Getch or whatever, but now completely gutted and backed by Unity side <laughs> input instead. And so the new UI we're building is not only a whole new UI, but it communicates with the game by emulating like keyboard input, right? <laughs> it does, the, the game doesn't even interact with the UI completely. And so it is just a wild mess to work with. It is, it is <laughs> just, just nuts. It's like UI, but even worse, worse than normal UI. It's like, yeah. Yeah. UI. Yeah. And I never, yeah, I never really got into trying game engines and things. It always felt like I'd be working like, like Spock on the reactor with those big old gloves, yeah, uh, trying is, to get is. things to run. <laughs> it is a little bit like that. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, in the end it's better because you can actually, you know, release video games and stuff instead of whatever we're going to be doing, but, uh, they'll work. Yeah. They'll continue to work. Uh, yeah. I think I, I made my own, I made my own engines for a long time. I'd always I'd get to like, I have to render a font 
right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh <laughs> boy, that's that's something, right? Take it. I gotta find a font definition and then render it out at a certain resolution. And boy, yeah. this is a whole lot of work. We, that I we just, just like... went ahead and said MS DOS eight by twelve. This is our friend forever. Uh, but but yeah. we used to put it in the terminal. But now we're like, well, we render it as quads <laughs> with a texture. And it's yeah. just it's just how it how things turned so, out. But so does know. it does it work if you if they're like, oh, I want to use code page X Y Z for for German localization. I or, mean, yeah. I mean, well, the, the, you you can you can swap you can swap out your 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 font, but. I mean, the the game itself doesn't have a lot of friendliness in terms of localization. There's just a bunch of hard coded right. strings or whatever. Yeah. Um, I I mean, the the procedural procedural text versus localization. The localization problem is really something that just needs to be done. It is something. I mean, it's, in the beginning, it's and, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All you have to do is rewrite the whole game, but in in French. <laughs> That's it, <laughs> right? We're going to swap out the language module, which is the entire game, with a French version, and now it's done. Um, well, it's all yeah, about it's the, a, the source code release. Is really what it's going to be about. Right? Are you planning um, on releasing the source code? Is that, is uh, that for real? So, well, this is, this is, it's complicated, of course. Um, uh, yeah. As I imagine, any like like I don't know what the what the code the code thing was. We can talk about that in a sec too. Uh, but but for us, it's it's. Uh, Something we'd always kind of been into, just as sort of a from the academic frame of mind or whatever. Just, just we've always just been giving out stuff for free and and busking and so forth. Even though that's going to change now, obviously. But but uh, we had like like my original original reservations were about you know oh I don't want to manage a giant code base and I don't want to have to deal with people right. Um, and that's still true, <laughs> but, uh, but, but at the same time, it'd be cool to get something out there. And so I was, I was kind of softening to it and so forth. And then I heard more and more stories about people that when you put your full game up, then it can get cloned to a different storefront, blah, blah, blah. And that's not a huge problem, except that people will be filing bug reports on an old version forever. Um, and, yep. uh, that happened to some people, uh, and I, you know, I need my bug tracker, right? Our game is a mess and we need to, we need functioning bug trackers and so forth. And so, uh, that, that didn't, you know, shut it down entirely though. Our current thinking is that at some point, uh, once we're kind of stabilized with what we're doing, we could do something like release the world generator, um, as a mm-hmm. sort of standalone product or whatever, not a product for purchase, but just a thing, um, and that people could look at that then, right? I mean, there's a lot of people interested in Dwarf Fortress World Gen Code. And of course, that includes everything about the data structures and all that kind of stuff. Um, but but we're not really worried about that since people have already reverse engineered all that stuff anyway. Uh, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, it seems safer. It seems like something we could do. Um, so. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to do it for Caves of Cud. The big thing that stops me from doing it right now is that I've got a bunch of Unity assets for like input and sound management and stuff that I pulled off the store that I wouldn't be allowed to open source. Ah, and so yeah. if I do open source it, I need to, I need to go ahead and pull those out and have like the CUD core open source. And then the, yeah. you know, some other tree for the, for the stuff I couldn't open source. We do have a big modding community and what they do is since it's in .NET, they can just reflect on it and see the source code anyway. <laughs> um, so they they can pop it open in Reflector and see anything that isn't obfuscated, which is most of our core engine. Um, and that's that's nice for the modding community. Still, I think it would be nice to have the the core stuff open source. Um, 
what are your, some of your favorite mods that have come out for cut oh there's so many there's so many good mods um there one developer did hearthpire which is just a base building mod right i mean obviously like dr- driven a little bit by dwarf fortress but taking the engine and allowing you to build a little town and build a little <laughs> build a little village and have qu- quality for all the furniture and try to make the villagers happy and be able to add villagers and assign them roles and stuff and it's just Aww. super super adorable and awesome um wholesome uh yeah mm-hmm. yeah we've got we've a, a couple collaborators that have, have done good mods and now sort of work officially on on the product so you know oh, modding communities yeah it's 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 been pretty great the modding community is really great um you know they do they do a lot of work we recently added it, modding can be a lot of work for modders and for developers right like you've got a you got to build hooks in for modders to use and then yeah. you've got to document it and they've got to figure it out and find bugs in the interfaces right and Recently, there was a project called Harmony, which was released, I got recently sort of in old person terms, right? Like in the last few years. Um, and what it is, is it's a tool that allows anybody to write a little C-sharp script and use that to update a C-sharp assembly. So basically to, at runtime, just modify the assembly code that's running. Mm. And so people were using that in some games like Battletech and Games of Cud. Um, modders were using it. You would have to run a little injector that would run Harmony and then load your mod. And so I took that and I built it directly into Caves of Cud fairly recently in the last <laughs> month or two. And that basically allows modders to mod any of the source code at all with a simple little C-sharp script That's without cool. you having to actually build modding hooks in at, 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 at the beginning. And so it's really like a whole new generation of modability for games that are built on .NET. It's, it's pretty neat technology. Does that make it difficult to have the... Uh... Um, various modders uh, play nice with the, their mods. Well, not necessarily. They, I mean, the modders have to have to deal with it. I don't know that it's any harder than existing modding hooks, right? It's always a little difficult if modders are modding the same thing to find a way that makes both things work together semantically. Often in big games like Skyrim, you'll have sort of super mods that expose Compile, a framework. Sure. Yeah, they expose a framework that other yep. modders use. Load orders. And those frameworks are sort of the way the modders negotiate with each other about how <laughs> you know, how to combine mods. Is that, okay, we're all going to use this framework, and that framework defines the way your mods go together. Right. So if our modding community ever gets that big, I expect those kind of projects to pop up. That'll be fun. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> um. Super exciting! Super exciting! The march to one point and the the release. It looks so like much... some people. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna. I was gonna say like how much how much modding happens in the Dwarf Fortress community right now. It's not something I've been following really. Oh, there's a, there's there's a ton. Um, I mean, it's it's it's. I'm I'm not sure how to quantify it compared to other games. Like we have our our modding forum with thirteen thousand topics and ninety three thousand posts or something. So there's huh? there's so something going on. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, because most of it, I mean, you can just write a new text file. Like, if you want to write a new creature, you just need to make a little text definition for them. Um, that's kind of one of the um, the things we'll see what happens when there's a there's now a a sort of classic slash premium community, and one of them requires graphics assets, and one of them doesn't. Right. Like what the what the fallout of that is, uh, how that changes modding in the game, and and so forth, and. 
we don't have uh, something like Harmony, but the the people that wrote a utility called DF Hack essentially uh, does things like that. You can kind of um, they've mapped all of the uh, the variable addresses and so forth, and people can write scripts that do anything. I mean, they they before I even got to the graphics, they had a, a mod called Text Will Be Text that separated out the the um, display of say creatures and stuff on the screen from the text that was used. Um, I don't know how it worked and allowed them to do, do things like separating out tile sets and so forth, uh, just yep. all, all on their own. Yep. Modding, mod, modding tools have existed like that for a long time, right? That just rewrite your jump tables for functions yeah. and then jump out into some other external <laughs> PLL or whatever. And they're all wild. Like, you know, like I've, I've never really had a good grasp of how they all work, but you know, those, those, it seems like modding technology is often, You've got the day they, the day job black or white hack hacker right who wants to relax by playing Skyrim <laughs> and Dwarf Fortress but has the skill to completely munch the internal jump tables and is like well let me write this let me write this shim for Dwarf Fortress modding or whatever yeah and all we can do to help them is is like um, there there was a uh, they wanted to have some memory addresses that ended up getting they, they had to fix it every time because when there was a uh, when there was a compile everything would move around right and so yep. all of the old mods would break and they had a they had various automated utilities and so forth that would find these addresses and so forth but it was still took a little time so i just exposed that stuff by just having some globals that have like here's one two three four five and then following that will be all the memory addresses and then five four three two one or whatever oh yeah and That's they nice. just kind of they just kind of suck it up and find it um and suck up the data and find it and uh yeah, and then as as far as I know, people people are pretty happy with how that's going, and there's no that's not going to change in the the Steam version. That stuff will all still be there. I don't know what Steam thinks about things. <laughs> Whatever it's like, you know, here comes here comes everybody with their kind of exe utilities and so forth, um, uh, altering things and so forth. But I don't see why they care that much. Yeah, I mean, in general, Steam has sort of upsides and downsides about it. But one of the upsides is that they're they're pretty ambivalent about the content that's on there. As long as it's not the thing that they don't like is when you link to things that aren't Steam but are trying to sell something. Yeah. So as long as you're doing, as long as you're not doing that, they're fine with whatever kind of crazy crazy stuff you want to put in the workshop. Yeah. The only like. thing they explicitly requested was was like, well, if you're releasing Dwarf Fortress Classic, like we require that Steam also has the ASCII version. <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They want parity with other yeah. storefronts. Yeah, and that's 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 cool. I mean, I. And yeah, so, are you planning on like selling a free version of, uh, or like putting that free version up on Steam? It's not not as uh, right now the plan, and of course, all this stuff is subject to to change. Is just to have that be an available branch uh, once you buy I the see. graphics game. See, because I could see it being free to play, and then you know, pay to upgrade or whatever. But yeah, I yeah, guess. I mean, it's it's kind of like it'd be just a way of formalizing the demo process or something like that. Um, yeah, and that's and yeah, it's 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 reasonable. Uh, it's not a bad idea. Knows. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how the see if anything changes up till launch. I mean, we're we're doing good, and and hope hope to have a hope to have a successful launch, whatever that means, and you know, 2021 or whatever it's going to be, uh, you know. Uh, oh, man, we're, we're going to be launching head-to-head <laughs> head, head head in November of 2021, huh? Yeah, kind well, of, I mean, yeah, I, I, I was assuming you guys were going to be out before us, but not if, like, you, know, like, oh, you, you, call, you call Tomb of the Eater Eaters like this axial element, but really it could just be a stepping stone up to the even larger um, 
uh, maps well, I'd like and things to ship that... next year, but but we had three, <laughs> we had three quests left, right? And so we did one of those quests, and that took eleven months. So even the most basic linear extrapolation of that says that we don't launch next year. So we'll see yeah. how it goes. Those quests don't all have to be bigger, right? The the the, the I don't know how much yeah, how much right. bigger they yeah they could be smaller. I mean. Like Skyrim think, had a big middle quest or whatever. Yeah, the the next the the penultimate quest might be smaller, but the the final quests you kind of want to go out on a bang, right? Mm. On the other hand, <laughs> players after playing that long are kind of sick of the game and just want it to end. So yeah, those are yeah, your, it's like have you have you done things like saying like how you long you want to play through to be and then counted how long it takes a play through to take currently right no we haven't done any of that of course i don't should think that's not amenable to that kind of rational analysis i don't think what we did do is that you can score a minor victory in tomb of the eaters so if you're mm. like i'm really done playing at this point and i just want to i just want to phone, phone it in at the end of tomb of the eaters you can opt into a sort of lesser victory and so you, you can't now is, is that kind of like the ADOM and the Roost Journal, that kind of thing? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, there's there's sort of a win and a major win. Well, we we have an idea for an ultimate win. So there would be like a minor win, a real win, and then we have an, an idea for a cool ultimate win, but it might have to wait for the first DLC because mm. we're just sort of running out of scope to do this additional <laughs> idea, which is like adding a whole other like, entire dimension to the game. I mean, like literally physical that, that you have to visit. So, so yeah i've been wanting to ask you guys this um tarn and brian how do you guys approach difficulty scaling in your game well i mostly ask jason to do it mm. I, so <laughs> the the actual like difficulty scaling is a design problem that that's mostly jason's mo so i don't know if i can answer that super well my approach is mostly bringing player concerns to the design team got it how about you turn well i mean badly (laughs) as far as i I mean we had those those werewolves that came the first season or second season for how long and that was basically making the game a mess for a lot of people we have these siege triggers that haven't really changed and a long time in the game is trivially easy if you decide to make a bunch of uh, traps and it's you know a little bit harder if you don't um and at the same time the the kind of ui itself was setting a whole sort of difficulty level in terms of are you going to starve or not um and i i don't i don't think we've been really thinking about that at all well here's anything here's what i want let me i'll i'll use this opportunity to make the door fortress feature request that's right um which is which is i think my favorite era of door fortress was very early when the world like when i when i played a lot it was like well you always start next to the stone wall right and you yep. always burrow down to whatever, like the demon chasm past. Yeah, the, it's like the the speedrun era of Dwarf Fortress. It's like how yeah, fast no, can you totally make a steel, steel bridge over the magma, right? Yeah, yeah, like like the very constrained play challenge of that era was very appealing to me, right? Um, and and I would still really like to play a Dwarf Fortress that is is a little more constrained and and, and way on the game year side, right? Because I sort of like just like to play little very tough, <laughs> impossible difficulties tactical games, right? And that's I mean like I I get everybody like who who likes all the great things that, that exist about Dwarf Fortress, but personally, 
what I would really like is like a little embark mode that was much more constrained, right? That maybe simulates the whole world around you, but it's still like, hey, here here's your little challenge to get down to level 100 and get the Balrog gem. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder how much we're gonna it, like. Like, I mean, certainly as as its own game mode, right? That that's that's an imaginable thing, and kind of the 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 thing that we were hoping and not 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 clear if we would be able to attain any feel like that was with these kind of embark scenarios. Like, if you're embarking right. as a like this this band of dwarves is uh, a bunch of sort of. Um, uh, religious outcasts from this community or whatever that want to create their own temple. And so you'll have much less interaction with your own civilization. You have this sort of goal of creating this thing, but it's, it's still, a, 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 it still isn't strictly gamey in, in the sense that, that you'd just kind of be playing the game or whatever, but, but you'd have had kind of thresholds and things that you could meet in terms of whether you've accomplished it and having, having people move in and so forth. And there's, there's a lot of ideas along those lines about what, what would add structure adding structure is not yeah it's different from adding adding this sort of compact gaminess but it might recapture some of that and of course the other problem is the map generation right this is just uh, three 3d map generation is not amenable to uh to this kind of structured experience <laughs> and yeah, so well, I, I could imagine like um yeah, it's not. <laughs> right? Like, but, I can imagine yeah. scenarios where you, like, pick a seed in a location and somebody digs through until you find, like, a nice seed in a location. But you kind of want to have, like, the, 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 like, the religious dwarf experience across many maps that have similar sort of feel, right? That have sort of certain, certain milestones that you can meet. And so, I mean, that's a, that's a tough challenge. And so we were going to rewrite at least, you know, for, for yet another time, rewrite the map generator when we were doing the myth and magic stuff to kind of support crunchier maps and maps with larger features that weren't just like, like right now we've just got, here's a cave layer, here's a cave layer, here's a cave layer, here's a cave layer. But now we're going to kind of say like, well, now we have some kind of fairly large thing. What if you just did this? What if you just did this? What if what if you had a rule set that you could match against a map? You could find a location and a map if one matches that meets a set of rules. And what you do is you set up like a a cloud service on Amazon that just generates maps <laughs> all day and finds the locations that meets those. And then when you generate a new map, what it does is it goes to that cloud service and says, like, give me a map against this rule set A. It says use this seed at this location and you get a map with that meets those. Yeah, I think, I, think the, I suppose the reason there isn't a demand for that is because our maps are not sufficiently interesting yet. Um, and and because there is like the, the Dwarf Fortress Perfect World utility that allows people to create right. better maps and so forth. But if we had more stuff underground, more interesting things, and then because we have a site finder utility and people could kind of pretty much find the site they want. Like I don't want an aquifer. I want uh, metals and and I want to be in this type of biome, sinister biome or whatever other kind of thing. Right, and, and you can find it pretty much in most of the medium sized worlds um, because the worlds are not that interesting. Uh, and so so the the um, when there's more interesting stuff underground, then there will be a ton of situations that don't exist in a given world. Um, and and then yeah, I think I think I think this 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 idea that people would start kind of well, here's a world I want. You know, I'm going to make a library of worlds to. Uh, to, um, I see. So we've identified the problem with Tour Fortress, which is that there's not enough stuff in it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> that's kind of that's the idea. Is to more, add more stuff. I, you got a little. T- I think it'd be really <laughs> fun to have uh, you know the ability to just have player made structures through the modding community that you can just download and randomly pop up throughout your your world. 
that that's also in the cards when we do the editor stuff because it's it's funny because the the, the 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 myth and magic thing kind of splits in two directions right there's like let's have whole new planes of existence and other like random crap down everywhere just being you know generated with some cohesion and so forth but 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 just generate 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 and then the other side of it is like well if you want to add some structure to your myths and things people should just be able to type some stuff up like here i, I always want to have a fire deity that was born from an egg it's required it's just how I roll in my worlds or whatever. And so you, and so we'd have all these kind of examples and templates. And we we're thinking, well, we have this whole project we worked on for like five years that that was a fantasy role-playing game thing that had a little more structure. And so we were thinking of just, just taking its sort of world-building stuff and setting it up as an example um, for how, you know, what editors you might have. And that would involve things like and cities with names and maps and things and then people could share those and then that you could say like yeah i need this one to be anywhere in the southern hemisphere or whatever and oh, yeah. um Cute idea. just kind of there it goes and uh then we just kind of put our fingers in our ears and the copyright infringement begins um yeah right but, <laughs> <laughs> marvel marvel x-men city sure yeah wolverine <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's like, like, yeah. I mean, obviously, we'll just need to flick them off, especially now that I've said it or whatever. Like, uh, no, 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 no. Go, go, hide off where people hide. Oh. But um, yes, the nightmare begins. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, 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 yeah. No, there's a, there's a lot of things. Well, and 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 like we were also thinking of having, um, you know, other other restricted. Now that we can kind of support other restricted game modes, like. Uh, I, I, there, there's probably an analog for the embark here. I mean, we're thinking like in adventure mode, we could just have a roguelike, right? If, if there's a if there's a sufficient dungeon generator, then you can just throw a person at level one and then have a traditional dungeon crawler and just call it dungeon mode or whatever. Balance right. out what crap gets placed in there and increase the crap that you find as you go deeper. And it, you know, the game is half written and then sort of unbalanced still. But we haven't done that up to this point, despite like having that idea kicking around for a decade is uh, just because we don't really have magic items and stuff. The kind of stuff that that's by which I mean sufficiently interesting item generation, right, to, to kind of carry um, carry the the game in that sort of isolated environment. And same thing with that kind of cow lion problem. We have a few interesting creatures, but not enough that are distinguished to uh, to to, I mean, it's kind of arguable that you could carry a traditional roguelike um, with the Dwarf Fortress framework on that on that point. Oh, I mean, I think you could. I think a lot of people would find it interesting just because of the reason why they find the existing Dwarf Fortress content fun, which is there's a lot of, like, apophenia around what's happening in the dungeon, right? So it's sort of arguable how much mechanical framework you need at all as long as you're sort of describing things on screen right <laughs> so like does the magic item really do anything different i mean to some extent it doesn't really matter as long as it's like sufficiently interesting to read about um yeah it's still sort of the march to death and 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 getting your teeth knocked out on level two or whatever uh yeah right there's not uh, the tactical I, depth is arguable <laughs> i showed you my playthrough where i was a peasant that wanted to go tomb raiding right and I walk through the door and immediately get a uh, whirling scimitar through my gut. <laughs> that was my adventure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So see, what, what we really need to do is just to find like a common roguelike community standard of item definitions and descriptions so that you can have like portals between Cud and Cogmind and Dwarf Fortress and Tome and sort of like characters will spill across those boundaries. Yeah. Right? We want like, to have a shared Yeah. Yeah, hypertext roguelike. 
We could, yeah, we could have like, like the shared afterlife bones file project. We wanted to do that at, for Bay 12 at some point to have the shared afterlife where you could just kind of visit all your dead characters from the different universes yeah. and things. And so you just upload those with some common, you know, common contact information protocol, right? And then we, any game can scrape them and you find a portal to, yeah. to a fortress. And you can always just filter gun. half the information anyway. It's like if we don't sure. know how to handle a ray gun or whatever, then they just come right. in holding a banana or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's how you kind of <laughs> expect, <wanna> expect <laughs> cross-world travel to work at, to, anyway, right? Sort of. Just put it in a banner for when you post on forums so people can scan a QR code. Yeah, there you go. It's kind of an initiative that would actually work if any two developers decided to do it. Then it would just kind of mushroom or uh, snowball at that point or whatever. Yeah, right. Like once once two games accepted it, then then you would get more. Wow. I agree with that. Guys, we're in the we room have, where it's we have happening. Two games right here. <laughs> <laughs> we, <laughs> you get to make the gold standard. The, the Dwarf Fortress CUD communication protocol. All right. <laughs> I'm down. Yeah, yeah, I'm game for it. So I'm, I've always kind of wanted to do a cross game communication like Tombstone Files, but the idea of like multiple, like, is just not quite interesting enough for me to really sit down and do it. But if I could also pull Dwarf Fortress Bones files into CUD. I think I think that would breach my Come my on. interest that, level. That would really, I mean, it would. It's unprecedented in the community. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have those XML files now. You could just scrape those right now. Uh, there's like yeah. a, a 700 megabyte XML dump of everything that happened in the world. I mean, it's like it's one of those things. Like every computer science problem has been solved already in the 50s or whatever. So I'm sure if we <laughs> if we went and look, you would find like an adventure game bones file definition that some somebody in like 1965 did for. Yeah, and there's there's certain ways in which it was done in games like Eamon and stuff like that with modules like the or like Frua and stuff like that where you're like right. like have the modules and things that probably had stuff like that going on yeah i want to bring urist <laughs> into uh into cud and and uh find some vine wafers <laughs> now all i'm thinking about is the magma ritual <laughs> <laughs> live or drink <laughs> uh This kind of ties into a, a sort of open question uh, that I pondered. When you think about CUD and the stories that it tells and the stories that its players receive, what is the kind of role between procedural generation, uh, systems-driven interaction, and uh, you know, handcrafted content? CUD has, has a lot of handcrafted content. And I think, you know, I think ultimately you spend enough time in procedural generation and you realize that procedural content is all handcrafted content too. Right. And all, all procedural generation does is allow you to sort of expand the volume that your, your consumer can walk inside the content you make, right. Instead of a single path through the creative space, you can create a volume and the player can sort of wander through a path in that creative space. And so the question is, why are you making a bigger volume? Is this, isn't a single path enough, right? And so if you're going to use procedural generation, I think you have to ask why a player wants to walk a bigger volume 
of of that space. And roguelikes are one answer to that, right? I mean, it's the the problems like, well, I want to make a game where your choices have some consequences. And sort of in order to have consequences that are interesting, real choices, yeah, the outcome kind of has to be unknown. It's not super interesting if you're making choices and you just look up the decision tree very trivially. And so procedural generation allows you to give some fuzziness to that to that choice space so that you can make these choices sort of in a vacuum without being able to look up the answer online. And that's interesting, right? Code, code allows you to play this wide space. Most roguelikes allow you to play this wide decision space where you're making choices that have an impact and you can try again because it's a little bit different each time. And that's that's sort of like where procedurality plays a part in in roguelike design, I guess. I don't know if that was a very good answer. It was a beautiful answer. And then there's the the flip side of deciding like like when you when you have people going through Golgotha like having them do that every time. Right. There's there's uh, there's a lot of sort of tension there that needs to be resolved. Yeah, it's 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 something we sort of inherited from Adam and a couple yeah. other games, right? And and maybe like early Dwarf Fortress where where there was proceduralness, but it was still you know the embark stuff was pretty similar from game to game, and a bunch of other, like one of my favorite old games was um, was Omega which had a similar sort of, <laughs> right? We had a similar sort of static skeleton. You would always show up in the city, but some things were different. The world map was like a little, you know, and yeah. it was always pretty interesting. I still am not sure we completely understand why it works the way it does, but we have a little better understanding of the fact that without some kind of static structure, it doesn't have to be literally a static world map, but it can be like some static ontology, some static characters, procedural pure procedural stuff just sort of fault like is a m- m- bowl of oatmeal it's a bowl of jello right yeah it's a bowl of it just, mush doesn't mean it's anything. just it's just muscles right yeah. I mean, it's just like a pile of twitchy muscles and so that that static content provides a skeleton that that imparts meaning on the rest of the content right that that we still are not very good at making these systems that produce really good, intelligent design content, right? Some things like GPT-3 are starting to do it in a sort of frighteningly good way, but still lacks a lot of sort of meaning that isn't just pulled out of the static corpus that they were trained from, right? And so you sort of impart meaning to the procedural content with these static elements, and the procedural content allows you to expand the volume that that static skeleton can explore, Right, allows you to have different adventures against the static content. And those are the sort of ways that that relates to each other, right? Sort of the, the skeleton providing structure, providing yeah. meaning to the procedural content, and the procedural content expanding the volume of adventures you can have around that, that core skeleton. Yeah, that's, I mean, we're, we're, we've kind of been experimenting with seeing like how much of the skeleton can you get away with generating right with the, right. Yep. With the dwarf fortress histories and uh, especially now the like the upcoming myth generator is is kind of like taking the omega town and saying like no we're really just gonna 
generate it from scratch every time. And but still, it's not like – I mean, but still you've done yeah. so much work, you know, thinking – like writing myths and figure, thinking about what the underlying skeleton of those myths are. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, right? yeah, there's, yeah. There's so much real skeleton underneath the covers. It's a little less concrete than what uh, yeah, we starting in Jopa. Because, I mean, but, well, yeah, I mean, looking at it from the other direction, I mean, a wall and a floor, sure. I mean, those are the concepts that, that, that kind of guide dungeon generation, but it's – it's it's it, it 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 is a procedural uh enterprise yep so so it's it's um yeah no and 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 uh not guaranteed to succeed obviously is the, is the main the main thing here right yeah it's no, an it experiment is... and it can fail yep no it's always interesting to sit down and sort of map out the space you want to explore and figure out places that'll never be able to go. Like, what about this kind of myth, right? Oh, well, that doesn't really fit into the skeleton that we've created, right? I mean, those are yeah. No, there's going to be huge. Stuff. There's huge tone issues, right? Yeah, just 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 if you if you like pull out the shotgun in the middle of the the kind of world creation <laughs> myth, then you've got you've got a different look, um, and it may work in some weird sense, but but it it, it depends on what you think of might and magic, basically, right? Like, yeah. what is your opinion of might and magic, um, and getting to the end of might and magic and seeing the little dude sitting at the computer desk or whatever. Um, you very know, positive. My opinion of might and magic is very positive. Yeah. So that's, I mean, yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, so that, 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 that's about exposition then. It was just like a whole other, you know, uh, topic, uh, of, of like, if the, if the game talked about that stuff at the beginning, you know, how much of the game would have changed, um, uh, and wh- whether or not you know our myths sound like crap, you could introduce those elements at at, at a later point, and and maybe not have uh, such jarring dissonance. I mean, the, the difference between a cool reveal and jarring dissonance is, is sits in how you've you've structured your exposition. I guess stepping down a layer of like away from game design abstraction and more into like gameplay concreteness. I think that one thing that having like Jopa and Golgotha and Bethesda and tomb out there statically in place is that just for gameplay, it gives you some concrete reasons to be doing what you're doing that are predictable. Right. Because yeah. if you don't know if the middle dungeon is going to be like a slime pool or a fire castle or a, you know, a nice palace or whatever, then there's no real way to prepare for that. Right. And, you know, there there are various ways to solve that yeah, problem. Of course, you solved your own problem with the sultans, basically. Sure, I mean, you, you know, do enough there's... studying to figure out that the dungeon is going to be icy. Plus, you have six choices. If you only had to yeah. do one, then bam, yeah, that's right? that's that's a way to solve it, right? Like, I think I think one way to solve it is I have a few keystone gateways that you're going to pass through, right? Like mm-hmm. Golgotha, that you know you have yeah. to prepare for. Then it gives you some framework to make your choices, rather than I just like the name of this thing. Yeah, am I going right? to get my so, tongue back, basically? Yeah, exactly. Right, I, and, and that's and that's interesting. That that gives your choices some way. It gives people a little bit of a little bit of, is now my favorite. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It just gives. I think, in particularly in CUD, where a lot in a lot of games, you you're starting with a Tolkien esque fantasy world that you're pre oriented in, right? Like yeah. you know what an orc is, you know what a dragon is, right? CUD. You don't know what a salt hopper is. You don't know what a snapshot is. Those are those are completely novel ideas. And so if you also drop them into like a completely lighthouseless world where there's no Jopa and there's no, you know, there's none of these other pieces of orientation, I think it is just a little too disorienting. And so giving them that 
core framework of a game that they can approach allows them to deal with the sort of much more disorienting non-Tolkien-esque world. Uh, and, and, you know, wait, you wait, know, wait, wait. It's pronounced Jopa? I've been pronouncing it Joppa this whole time. You can time. pronounce it however you want. It's probably pronounced Joppa. I call it Joppa. <laughs> Joppa. Joppa. It's like, and so, like, I think you can get away from with generating a little more of a fantasy world than you might be able to do with a cut world because you're you, you get a lot of orientation out of the fantasy substrate that you don't get out of cut substrate. Yeah, That's I mean, I, yeah, I think you, I mean, you still have like your your like I think mutations and cybernetic enhancements are all kind of for free, uh, pretty much. There's certain yeah. things you can ride with. Um, but I mean, also, I mean, there's there's kind of the question of the the beginning and the advanced player here. It's like most of the stuff we're talking about is for like a beginning player. I think, uh, I think you could you could. Well, I don't know what would happen. What would happen if you someone's been playing Caves of Cud for a while and then decides to press the I don't want a fixed things button. Well, we added a little bit of that with the villages, right? Yeah, exactly. We, yeah. Pe- people said, "Well, I don't want to deal with Jopa, right? I'm I'm bored of this. I'm ready to to venture out." And a lot of people play play like that. I could certainly imagine a mode that like just randomized the overworld yeah. for advanced players. And uh, I did a random uh, actually yesterday where I I j- jumped into a hill town. And uh, it was completely flooded, but uh, it was nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I hundred percent could imagine that. I think people who yeah. have become become oriented to the world would enjoy a lot of that. But I think, I think, still, even in the complete random version, you're oriented against your prior games with that static content, right? Oh, exactly. It, yeah, it's, it's not just it's just not just, and it's not just like learning the words and things. It's also game mechanics and so forth, yeah. right? Just you're better at the game and you want to try something a little different. Yeah. I mean, it's part of it's just boredom, right? You just want to try something a little different in the same kind of overall setting. Yeah, um, well, and it's it's interesting. Yeah. Like, let me build dirt towards a different mid game challenge. Oh, that's interesting, right? It's different values than if Golgatha is your your mid game challenge. So, I mean, right. I think there's lots of reasons why people would want yeah. to inject even more procedurality, you know, expand yeah. the volume of, of experience. And but, but certainly, yeah, as a, as a game that you're like, you know, I want new people to play my game. I mean, it'd certainly be a weaker experience uh, if it was just sort of Sultan oriented um, the dungeons all the, all, you know, top to bottom, uh, you know, and, and like trying to concoct some kind of procedural mid game that was, di- I mean, that end game that was kind of different the whole time. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I think I- and I, I frankly think a lot of that isn't even game design. It's more just like Jason does such beautiful writing. No, exactly. Yeah, no, but I mean, like I, just putting yeah. it out there as as that as the static content is great for cod, right? Yeah, it's not no, like absolutely. you know that just happens to to play to our strengths. So, with, so what, do you, with, what do you what do you think about every single window in the game saying perfect at the bottom? Oh, has that become was, a yeah? It's right perfect. Now. Yeah, <laughs> I always, always love that. Perfect I, hostile, right? Like, uh, yeah, I, I love I love reading like like um, like Jason or, or one of your contributors will will post like here's a new write up of a new item or a new person that you meet, and always at the bottom it says perfect. <laughs> no, it's 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 a subliminal mind control. It's absolutely <laughs> just a complete psyop. <laughs> Is it, are things ever not perfect? I don't remember. Do things get damaged or do things get despoiled? Oh, yeah, no, that's a that's a water, that's a damage yeah. yeah, that that's a damage readout where perfect yeah, is hundred yeah, yeah, percent. Yeah, it's just yeah. that when we're when you're looking at debug text, right, you're always looking <laughs> at some wished up object and so it's just always perfect. <laughs> that's 
So, Brian, how would you handle mutations and character design now if you were to make Quad 2? Cud two. I mean, I don't even know if we'd have like combat in Cud two. What what does that mean? <laughs> it would be completely different. No, I, I think I think we're going to get a chance to actually redo it a little bit before release. We're going to restructure uh, character creations flow a little bit, but not too much. I actually think I actually think for as dumb as we were when we started Caves of Cud, character creation is fairly successful. In part because we tried like a point, like a levelless system early on. And in trying a levelless system, we said, wow, levels are a great idea. Levels really work <laughs> for a lot of reasons that you don't realize before you try to remove levels from your game system. And so we ended up just saying, well, let's try a default RPG system. And it really works pretty well, right? I think character creation is like, of the things we've done in Caves of Cud, one of those successful things. Um, oh, I really the, enjoyed the creation. Yeah, yeah. One of the, I, I think we, I think the changes we're going to make are largely about what order you make the decisions in. Because right now you make your character decisions, the choices about your character in a kind of strange order, um, where like dependent, you're making some dependent choices before later choices, like your class versus your stats, in a very strange order where you're having to like lay out your stats before you pick that you're a warrior and yeah. it's just very strange for people and we're going to redo some of that so i think that's that's what i would change and i think but i think we're actually going to get the opportunity to change it before the final release nice well i think we're we're getting close to uh wrapping up captain do you have anything else yeah so i normally have a very strict spoiler policy but I would like you to reveal one thing to me. And does Cud have tack nukes? Um, that is a spoiler. I do know. I do not know all of them, but yes, we do have. We not only have tactical nukes, we have handheld nuclear weapons. <laughs> so that. So we you hear this. I, I hear it. I hear it. We're behind the curve Put yet again. In. So you can. Well, you can. Can you, you get away from this... it? Like, or do you have to like go to the other side of the map to, uh, the, to being able to deploy it is, is a trick in itself. You can sort of teleport it far away from you. You can set it as a bomb. You can put it in a grenade launcher and hope that you don't miss and shoot it <laughs> as far away from yourself as you can. So, you know, there are people, you can also like put it on a, put it on a timer of some sort or like shoot it through a space-time vortex to a different zone and have it detonate there. So there are a few ways to, to do it without completely annihilating yourself. It has that Noida feel to it kind of, I guess. Yeah, I don't think anybody, I don't think you can get a good enough throwing range to throw it and live okay. unless you live, unless you like you might be able to do it if you like phase and then throw a non-phased grenade. I don't know. Well, you're doing you're revamping physical mutations, right? That's true. Get some Blazeball inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you can. Yeah, maybe if you get a bat or a club, you should. You should really be able to, <laughs> with a cudgel skill, just really knock grenade like launch grenades. Huh? That would be cool to have an automatic. That would be cool. <laughs> that would be cool. I guess you could parry projectiles as well that way. That's right. Oh. 
That would be so good. Like somebody tries to throw a grenade at you, but you have the cudgel skill, whatever. <laughs> it works for baboons too when they best, throw rocks at you. Yeah, best batter in the rust or whatever. And then <laughs> right back at him. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Bring the Star Wars. <laughs> cud bomb, mod. We need to bring Blazeball into this Universal Bones file. I mean, I would play like a mutant league football game set in cud. Immediately. Yeah. I mean, I would play uh, that all day. Yes. <laughs> Are there any game jams coming up? I, oh, boy. Do I have to make wow. Yeah. That's upsetting. <laughs> yeah. What about, well, how about uh, uh, a mutation where you have uh, a shield that rotates around you? Yeah, you could do that. I was like, they had High Lie in Florida. I don't know if you ever watched High Lie, but it's like, it's just a crazy game they throw this tiny little rock hard ball with like the big arm things you know like the ball game in tron in this <laughs> arena with concrete sides it's sort of like it's like well no they, they they have these like huge baskets on their hand that give you a lot of leverage so that it's like it's like handball if the ball was like going 150 miles an hour and it is wild to watch so i think if i was going to add a ball based game to cut i would want to draw highlight inspirations there, you go. To, there was a high life facility, uh, like a few, uh, I guess, man, how far was it? It was like within 20 minutes of where I lived. And Jason and I and friends would often go down and watch people play high life. So I think we'd be doing our, our, our history in the service if we added a ball game and it wasn't high life based. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And boomerangs too. We don't have boomerangs yet. You do have a geomagnetic disc. I don't know if that counts. Oh, the geomagnetic disc does. You th- it's a thrown weapon that comes back to you, it, uh, like sort of gliding on the geomagnetic cur- curvature of the planet. Yeah, it'll come back to me eventually. I'll remember. That's right. It's a good item too. So if you're a boomerang fan, then you want to get your hands on a geomagnetic <laughs> disc. Yeah, I heard they're coming back. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, that was a joke I tried to set up earlier. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry I took that bullet for all of us. Yeah. I appreciate it. All right. Uh, I think that's going to do it for this episode of Dwarf Fortress Talk. Thanks for joining us. Uh, th- yeah, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, 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 thanks for coming by. <laughs> uh, where can uh, Cud be acquired most easily? You can get on Steam or Itch or GOG. Just go to cavesofcud.com and it'll list all the storefronts. It's like Caves of, caves of Cud. Q-U-D. Q-U-D. Not the other Caves of Cud. We don't like those guys. <laughs> All right. It's just about uh, cows chewing cud in the caves. <laughs> yeah, it's either cows or, or, well, they're different or main, than the lions, mainless right? lions that are not aggressive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they just gum their prey. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, thanks for joining us. It's awesome. Uh, we, we just uh, shout outs to everyone on. Uh, on reddit and the forums this week thanks for joining us and being part of our community and uh we're just uh really happy that uh you're creating that ui for our game tarn yay yay yeah everyone loves ui it's all coming 
Everyone loves procedural guts. Yay.